Welcome to the Glittering Bell Jar, a Harry Potter podcast. I'm Valerie. And I'm Bree. We're two writers and Harry Potter fans. In this podcast, we explore the Harry Potter series by reading it backwards. As you might recall, Harry and his friends discover the power of the Glittering Bell Jar in the Department of Mysteries as it causes objects to move backward and forward through time. We're doing the same thing each week, working backwards through a few chapters, starting with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Ready to explore Harry Potter in a new way? Then join us in the Glittering Bell Jar. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Glittering Bell Jar. I am your co-host, Bree, and with me is Valerie. Valerie, how are you today? Hello, everyone. I am doing great. Thank you. Yeah, good. Well, I am excited to be back to talk about a another episode, two chapters today of The Glittering Bell Jar. So we are reading The Deathly Hallows right now, and we are in the middle of the book. And I don't know about you, Valerie, but I loved these chapters. I did too. Yeah. And sorry, I... I forgot to ask I forgot to ask how you're doing today. Oh, thank you. I'm good. If you all follow our Instagram on the glittering bell jar, bell jar pod, um you will know we have a new member and it is a little kitty. So, Sean and I adopted a kitty. We have two dogs and we went ahead and got a cat. Yep. The, so, I'm doing the, good. The GBJ family is growing. <laughs> yeah. And if you're listening right around the time this episode is initially published, you should make sure you head over to our Instagram because Brie and Sean are using Instagram to do polls about what this kitty should be named, or at least honorarily named with regard to the Harry Potter Wizarding World. So it's a chance to yeah. you know, play a little play a little part in it. And I will say that my vote, my initial suggestion was Padfoot, which I thought was a pretty clever choice for a little cat mm-hmm. because He's a black kitten, right? And he's yep. it's a he. And so I thought Sirius first, but Sirius is more associated with dogs. And so I was like, well, Sirius's nickname was Padfoot. And that's a cute little name that also applies to cats. But I don't think that's going to be the final choice as it's kind of too, too on the nose. I know. You know what? I actually love that suggestion. I've always wanted to name an animal Padfoot and it just never has happened. So, you know, we will see. Uh, it's it's technically Sean, my boyfriend's, I mean, it's both of our cats. We live together, been together forever, but he has wanted a cat forever. And I finally was like, huh. I was like, hey, if you want a cat, you can get one. He's like, what? <laughs> so, he came home five minutes later with one in his pocket. <laughs> basically, not even kidding. A week later, we had a cat. So <laughs> yeah, fun. Well, okay. So he gets final, final say. And if you yeah. want to have a little bit of pre-final say, you should head over to social media and vote in the poll. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so all this talk of cats, I want to interrupt really briefly because as you may have noticed from last week, or maybe you didn't notice if I did a good job editing, (laughs) we had a slight technical issue and the end of our episode got cut off a little bit weirdly and we forgot to do our Gilderoy Lockhart style quiz. So today we're actually going to be answering the question for episode eight, Mm -hmm. which was last week and episode nine later in this episode. So for this particular intermission that we're currently having, a reminder that we are answering questions about ourselves and you can collect these answers. And then at the end of the season, we will have a quiz and you'll be able to win a Harry Potter prize pack. Mm-hmm. But each episode theoretically has a different question. And obviously last week's didn't. So we're making up for that now. And all this talk about cats made me think of the question we need to answer, <laughs> which is you have three choices of what pet you want to bring to Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. You can choose a cat, an owl, or a toad. Which one would you choose? Uh, I mean, I imagine it's the one we both want, although it is a really tough choice. I mean, I would choose a cat. I would too, but an owl is so helpful. 
Okay, that's true. I mean, I guess there are school owls. There are school owls. You could use a school owl and you're presumably your parents have an owl and they can send you letters with their owl or whatever. But like, yeah, I'd have to have a cat. Something to curl <laughs> up with you by the fire in your common room. Yeah, I'm a cat. So this one's an easy one, everyone. Yeah. If you're tracking these questions, uh, we both have the same answer, which is a cat. Uh, we would both bring a cat and we would be in different common rooms because we're in different houses. So luckily these cats would not have to learn to co-mingle like <laughs> Bree's cat and her two dogs are struggling yep. to do right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's jump back into the episode. I'm excited to get started. Do you like to dump in? I'm ready. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. So um, as a reminder, if this is your first time listening to The Glittering Bell Jar, the way it works is that we are reading the Harry Potter series backwards. As Bree mentioned, we are currently in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, and we are covering two chapters today. The way we read these chapters is we start with the final sentence and then we read the chapter. But when we discuss it in the episode, Brie gives us a synopsis of that chapter and then I read the final sentence and then we discuss together. All right, so let's jump in. So today we are covering chapter 17 and chapter 16. First chapter is 17, Bathilda's Secret. So the chapter starts, Harry and Hermione are at Godric's Hollow, where they are at the graveyard in Godric's Hollow. They find the Potter's house as a memorial to their death and to Harry, the boy who lived. It is at that time when Bathilda Bagshot finds them and lures them back to her house, where she separates Harry and tra- traps him, ending up becoming Nagini. Uh, moments before Voldemort arrives, Harry and Hermione are able to apparate out of the house, um, while Harry, being connected to Voldemort, relives the terrible night of his parents' death. It's an intense chapter. Yeah. It is such an intense chapter. There's so much good stuff here. And Mm -hmm. before we jump into it, the final sentence in this chapter reads, Her face glazed with tears, Hermione handed over her wand, and Harry left her sitting by his bedside, desiring nothing more than to get away from her. So not only does all of that happen, Mm -hmm. there's one more thing which I'm sure we're going to cover. If you've read the book, you know. It's the destruction of Harry's wand. And Harry, though he knows it's not Hermione's fault, is still very upset with her. So In the previous episode, we talked about when Ron returns and how Ron has this sort of idea that Harry and Hermione are having a great time together. And these two chapters are actually the only two chapters of the book where it's just Harry and Hermione and it is not pleasant for the two of them. They are not happy traveling, just the two of them. They need Ron to balance out their relationship. And we're probably going to cover it several times between these two chapters, because as we can see with the end of this chapter their relationship struggles under the weight of their mission and not having Ron there to help them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it all makes sense. As you read that last sentence, it made sense to me, especially then why Harry was so upset about his wand, because as we're going to talk about this chapter is very heavy and Harry has this connection with Godric's hollow and he gets to see where he was born and where he lived. And he gets to relive the night where Voldemort even sees his parents having a moment with Harry, he he realizes everything that he lost and the life he could have had. The only thing, you know, he has connected to his just, I don't know, maybe to his blood, to himself is that wand. It's this one thing that is left, you know, of course his friends, but it's this one thing Harry gets to control and have a connection with. And it snaps then at that moment after having to relive all of that. Like, oof, that's brutal. This, it's actually really interesting that these two chapters are almost one chapter. Mm -hmm. If you read that, they kind of read straight through as just one act in this long 
drama that we're living in Deathly Hallows. And so it's, I agree, it's, it's become very clear that Harry's wand is he, and in this chapter, especially the book is written such that you get a sense of how important Harry's wand is because he actually loses it in the battle with Nagini on the floor in Batilda's house. He drops it, it gets thrown from his hand and he's just, his only goal is to get his wand back. And then he finally gets it back in his hand and it gets damaged beyond repair though of course we know it's not totally beyond repair in the end though at this point in the book we can't possibly know that and it is such a huge blow on top of the fact that in both of these chapters harry's coming to terms with all that dumbledore didn't do to help him with the success of his mission and ron has literally just left and then his wand it's like the hits keep coming and it's no surprise that by this point harry wants nothing to do with anybody i mean he just wants to be alone and actually I was looking because I couldn't remember, but my, one of my favorite sentences in this book is actually the start of chapter 18, which we already covered, but it's, the sun was coming up, the pure colorless vastness of the sky stretched over him, indifferent to him and his suffering. Harry sat at the entrance of the tent and took a deep breath of clean air. Mm. Like that's my one of my favorite images in my mind when I read this book and it comes right on the heels of he's just over it. And then of course, we've already covered Harry gets very angry with Dumbledore and he has to process all that and discover what the actual purpose of all this work is and yeah, this cha- these two chapters just like there's so much. I mean, I think I probably have more notes in these two chapters. I had to go into my second set of sticky notes because I always have one for for the notes that I take. I went into the second <laughs> one on this one because there's just so much to cover. So let's uh, let's start at the top and just see where we go. Uh, it's trying to stay to chapter 17 as much as we can, but undoubtedly jumping back and forth. I'll try. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna take us down. A, I will try to make it a quick rabbit hole. Okay. Um, as I as I tend to do. Okay, so this is the part that I found interesting. You have three protections that Harry ends up having. You have, of course, whenever he was hit with the killing curse, which he was protected by Lily's blood, right? Or by her, yeah, by her love. Then you have whenever Voldemort took his, his blood inside of him. The third one, which I think can sometimes be confused, the reason Harry was protected at Pivot Drive was because, because Dumbledore actually put a protection over the house, mm-hmm. which I think can be confused with, Lily's like blood and Lily's love. It mm-hmm. it was just because Voldemort Dumbledore put that over him. Mm-hmm. But something that I learned is that had Voldemort actually decided to repent or feel remorse because Lily's magical blood was now inside of Voldemort, he it could have healed him. Hmm. Yeah. So J.K. Rowling actually mentioned that he could have he could have been healed from that, which I found super interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we obviously haven't covered the protections uh, that Harry experiences when he lives at Privet Drive yet, though we're going to in this book because it's mm-hmm. something where whenever Harry no longer calls Privet Drive home, that's when that charm will break, which is like mm-hmm. magic we've never heard of. But all of this is magic we've never heard of. Right. I actually like to think of it in my mind as an equivalent to what happens in the Chronicles of Narnia mm-hmm. with the deep magic, mm-hmm. magic that is almost unspoken. It, it, it can't even be conjured. It is simply the way magic works if it if certain things happen in the right order. So in this case, we learn because Lily stands in front of Voldemort and makes that sacrifice, mm-hmm. she activates a form of magic, not by choice, not by casting it, yeah. just naturally activates a deep magic that protects her son. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, that doesn't seem to apply in other cases, right? We have other parents who die for their children. I would presumably think that There are other kids even at Hogwarts whose parents have died in the war so far, but they don't have that same protection, probably because it's specifically Voldemort trying to kill Harry. So, I mean, I hear you because I, it would be hard to believe that no other parent was given the choice, but specifically the reason is because Voldemort 
stands there and gives her the choice. You know, most people, they would just be standing in front of their child. Mm -hmm. And most people probably aren't going after a child specifically instead of the parent. You know what I mean? Like when would that happen when someone's like, I'm just going to kill your kid, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he literally is like, I don't care about you. I will save you. He doesn't say that, but he basically says, move aside, move aside. And she's like, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's, that's kind of what I mean. Like this unique set of circumstances comes together to activate a type of magic that isn't common and isn't even maybe understood Mm. or known. Yes. Right. I mean, we've talked briefly, I've always alluded like the department of mysteries that the door to the room of love is locked. Like they don't even study it. They can't even make sense of it. I think that that's, it's, it's really interesting because it is meant to be. There's the conscious magical world that everyone participates in. And then there are forms of magic which run much deeper under the surface. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry. I just had to go down That's that, okay. that I love rabbit it. hole because I just- <laughs> I love your rabbit I, holes. <laughs> I keep finding all of it. Yeah. I'm probably going to talk about it the whole book because I maybe the whole series because I find it all very interesting. Yeah. So The one that jumped out at me right, right away in this chapter is kind of related um, and it's referenced in the previous chapter, chapter 16, is mm-hmm. that when Harry and Hermione are standing in the graveyard- that they there's stories of the graveyard being haunted and he thinks to himself what if mm. and it and it, initially I was like who is he thinking might be there and I was like oh it's obvious he's wondering if his parents are there mm. but the stories of hauntings in Godric's Hollow's graveyard go far be- back beyond that and obviously they don't encounter anything like that but I noticed in my mind that sentence sort of jumped out at me that he's just so desperately hoping to have anyone come back to him that he's lost because he's lost so many people that even mm-hmm. when it seems so unlikely and it basically impossible he still wonders if if someone that can help him will come help him instead of him having to carry the entire weight of this himself honestly this chapter is so freaking sad like um page 331 mm-hmm. is in the very beginning of the chapter for a moment, Harry considered taking refuge because he sees everyone in the bar having a good time. And like, he's like, oh man, that would be fun. And then, you know, he's obviously not able to do that. And it's like, damn, <laughs> like I just, this poor guy, you know, mm-hmm. like. Oh. He has that thought several times um, and we're going to come to it because I definitely, I cross-referenced a note from elsewhere that we've already covered in the book um, in chapter 16 about him just wanting to go back to Hogwarts too. I did actually, I should have said this initially, but I did note when Voldemort's ordering Lily to stand aside that the word that describes his decision-making is prudent. He could have forced her away from the crib, but it seemed more prudent to finish them all. And that word prudent is really interesting to me because from my perspective, he thinks it's prudent and it's literally the opposite of prudent because if he had just forced Lily away, two things would never have happened. One, Harry would not have had the protection of his mother Mm. and her sacrifice. And two, Snape would not have turned against Voldemort. Right. That one decision that he thinks is the right call has a, has a ripple effect in two directions that end up being his undoing. Yeah. And it's like very a very interesting kind of thought process that it, it seemed prudent, like prudent meaning, you know, a, a wise choice, the well thought out one. And it's absolutely not. Yeah. I'm loving dissecting because he, he makes so many mistakes. Like there are so many little mistakes that he makes mm-hmm. that end up being, it's his own choices that end up being Voldemort's undoing, which is... So freaking fascinating. Uh, I actually don't have very many notes in this chapter. Mm. The only other one that I picked up, and it does have a cross-reference, is um, the description of Batilda when they reach her house and they finally see her and how her eyes are clouded with cataracts and her skin is sunken and transparent and broken veins and liver spots and all these descriptors. I was trying to get a sense of, is the body of Batilda already dead? Because to me, that sounds a lot like a body which is not alive anymore, like Mm -hmm. and in early stages of decomposition. And so what I did is I went and I looked back at the chapter where we listened to the report on the uh, wireless once Ron has returned to them. And the description is just that 
her body showed unmistakable signs of injuries inflicted by dark magic. So they don't give you a, a ton of sense of exactly what that means. But what I was thinking was like, we hear a lot about Inferi and the reanimation of dead corpses and how like Voldemort built his army that way in the past. And it's very scary to everyone. I mean, it meant, it's mentioned several times in the books. And I wondered if that's what this looks like. Does it literally just look like somebody who's dead, who's up and moving about? In this case, Nagini is sort of magically encapsulated and animating the body in that way. But I thought, you know, you wouldn't, you almost could miss the fact that she's an inferior. She's a dead body that's been reanimated, which is sort of scary that that's how the magic would really look. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I don't want to dive into it. I don't want to research it, but like, can you reanimate any dead body? How far along after death can they be reanimated? Like, it, these are all kinds of dark magic questions that I'd be curious about, but not yeah. curious enough to look it up. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, but could he also just disguise himself as Bathilda and he wasn't really Bathilda? It was just like a covering and she's like in the closet somewhere and that's why it smelled so bad? I wondered about that. I did wonder about that. I could not get a sense of like, when I read it, I was trying to figure out if there's a point where she leads him into the bedroom and around the corner, there's a pile of dirty rags. And I was like, is that meant to be the the original corpse? But I don't think so. I think she is a Hmm. pseudo in theory who's been reanimated. And it just, she's just very slowly decomposing. And so that's why the house smells so bad, which is an awful smell. I really, later Harry says he can still smell it on him. And I'm like, I'm glad that I can't smell it because I don't, that does not sound pleasant at all. So what else did you have in this chapter? Um, Yes. So I, and I might be, I hope I don't mix the two chapters, but honestly it happens a lot. I just found it really sad. So they trusted Pettigrew so much because one of the lines is Voldemort's talking in his head and he's like, they're so stupid. They they trusted they're so they trusted Pettigrew so much that they don't even have their wands on them. Like James puts his wand down because mm-hmm. he's playing with Harry. And the only reason he had it is because he was like blowing little bubbles of smoke for Harry to like hold on to. And honestly, if you know you're listening, I would recommend going and checking out that part because it's so sad. They don't neither one of them have their wands. They trusted Pettigrew that much that neither one of them were able to even protect themselves at all, mm-hmm. other than their own using their own body as a shield. Yeah, it's I I guess I it makes me think like would I would I carry my wand around my house if I thought I was safe? You know, every day there's nothing there's nothing that I carry for my personal protection, but even when you know you're being hunted, if you've set up a security system, let's say like in the muggle world, mm-hmm. like you've got a really good security system or you have security guards outside or something that might be equivalent, you wouldn't think you need to carry a weapon on you at all times. You might have one nearby, but you wouldn't assume that Right. You know, with no warning, you would be under attack the way that they are. Right. It's. It, I definitely kind of also, this is one of those times where I wonder what else is going on behind the scenes. Pettigrew has gone missing, presumably, right? Mm-hmm. He's gone over to Voldemort and given him that information. Obviously, you don't want anyone to talk to Peter Pettigrew after that, because if Sirius talks to him, if Dumbledore talks to him, they're going to know that he's spilled the beans and revealed the secret. And so presumably like Dumbledore and or Sirius or someone is like, where is Pettigrew? He's supposed to be under, why isn't he under protective guard so that he can't be taken by Voldemort and told, you know, convinced to tell the secret. Yeah. So behind the scenes, like there must be a lot of terror or the the idea of terror that something is going wrong because nobody can get a hold of the, the Potters and nobody can get a hold of Peter Pettigrew. And that means that something is wrong. Yeah. And I, I looked up the secret keeper just so I completely understood the magic. So basically if you want your location to be kept secret, you tell one person. And once you've told that one person, you can no longer tell anybody else. They are the only person who knows your location and it cannot be tortured out of them. They can only voluntarily tell you. Hmm. 
Um, there's no magic that can get out of them, which I still don't fully understand why they decided, why Sirius thought it was a good idea to switch to Pettigrew. I mean, I, I do understand what they say, which is Sirius first thought he would be tortured by Voldemort anyways. He mm-hmm. was willing to sacrifice himself. It wasn't a, a fact of him being scared. He's like, I would die before giving away their secret. Mm-hmm. He thought it was somehow safer if Voldemort had to go through him first and then try to find Peter Pettigrew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. This was obviously their mistake. Right. I mean, I agree. I always thought that it could be tortured out of you, which is why Sirius says, look, I I will never give the secret up. But then also, mm-hmm. if that's what you believe, you should be the secret keeper. Right. <laughs> Don't put it off on the guy who might give it up if he's tortured. You want to give it to the guy who won't give it up if he's tortured. <laughs> yeah, I don't... Maybe he wasn't sure that there wasn't a magic that could pull it out of him. I don't know. I just don't... Yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. Because the secret keeper can tell people... Right, because we know that when they only. arrive at right, mm-hmm. right, but we know that Dumbledore lets everyone know where Grimald places, and he does so by leaving notes, basically like leaves a piece of paper with the with the secret on it, and that's sufficient to break the charm so that Harry can enter. Yeah, it's that's a very interesting. I don't know why they went with Peter Pettigrew. Other than that, it makes the story work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and then how did Sirius know where they were once it all happened? So my guess here here would be my hypothesis. Peter is made secret keeper, mm-hmm. but if you already knew where the Potters lived, which Sirius would have known, mm-hmm. he would from before the charm. Yeah, he when he did not hear from Peter when they checked in with him that night, he would have immediately known something was wrong and gone to the Potter's house, and that's how he arrives when Hagrid is there co- collecting Harry. Because it's interesting how Dumbledore could have known sooner than Sirius, because Dumbledore knows sooner enough to dispatch Hagrid yeah. to go collect Harry. He even knows Harry's alive, which is suggests that Dumbledore went himself. Now I've got a bunch of gaps in the story. Me too. Well, why are they at Godric's Hollow if that's where they always were anyways? How is that now a secret? Well, I think that the Fidelius charm just means that nobody can enter without permission. Like they, there's a point where they describe it where like Voldemort could literally have his his face pressed up against the glass looking in and he wouldn't have been able to see them in there. Oh. Even if he knew where they lived, he wouldn't have been able to see them. Okay. It's, it's the, when the charm breaks, it's that he, he can see exactly that they're there. He can, they're no longer hidden from his ability to see them and interact with them. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Interesting magic. That's another one that I think about where we talked about protective charms as we started this, this episode or this chapter, that there are all these sorts of protective magics that are a little bit more complicated than the standard, like wave your wand and say some words and something happens because certain conditions have to be met for them to actually work Mm -hmm. or not work. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to have to keep diving into that because it is all, all this like different sets of magic I want to dive into. Right. And the Fidelius charm is such an important charm kind of throughout the series. I'm Mm -hmm. sure it's going to come back up. Yeah. You know, the only thing I found interesting was and I want to keep an eye on this, but the way that anytime we hear Voldemort's thoughts, the words are always kind of beautiful, which it means that maybe like Rowling mm-hmm. kind of liked being inside his mind. Because listen to this. A metal heart was banging outside his chest, and now he was flying, flying with triumph in his heart without need of broomstick or threstral. I don't know. I was like, man, did, she must have really liked him. Or I don't know, liked the evil part of it or something, mm-hmm. because it's always kind of beautiful, kind of poetic every time we're inside his mind. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree. I, there were lots of sections yeah. in this this particular section where it's like, it's very easy to read because it is so beautiful and evocative in the way she writes it. Yeah. No. What about you? Anything else from this chapter? No. I, like I said, I didn't have a ton in this chapter, but I have a ton in the next chapter. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Okay. Let's get to it. All right. So we are going to move on to chapter 16. Hey, so let's make the galleons to keep the show going. Have you heard of the Osseo box? 
The Osseo box is the Magical World's only vegan and cruelty-free indie subscription box, and it's perfect if you still need a little more magic in your life after listening to this week's episode of The Glittering Bell Jar. Each monthly box is a theme from the Wizarding World. Past boxes include Big Witch Energy, House Pride, and Magical Books. You can also buy past boxes and themed character boxes. You know which one we want, hashtag Neville Fan Club. Visit our sister site at followthebutterflies.com slash Box to sign up today and you'll receive 20% off your box or subscription. That's followthebutterflies.com slash Box to sign up for the Osseo Box. Thanks for supporting our show. Now let's get back to the Wizarding World. So Godric's Hollow. Ron has just left Harry and Hermione and they are dealing with the loss. They then decide to head to Godric's Hollow to try and look for the Sword of Gryffindor. During this chapter, we are engulfed in Harry's pain of losing not only his parents, but the life he didn't get to live. In the end of the chapter, they discover the uh, the grave of Ignotus, Dumbledore's mother and sister, and Harry's parents. And the final sentence in this chapter reads, Harry put his arm around Hermione's shoulders, and she put hers around his waist, and they turned in silence and walked away through the snow past Dumbledore's mother and sister, back toward the dark church and the out-of-sight kissing gate. Mm. Do you know what a kissing gate is? I don't. I was hoping you would tell me. <laughs> okay. I, I looked it up. I had an idea in my mind. I always imagined it sort of as like a beautiful like arch, like a metal archway that would be like, in, in my mind, it's where you would take pictures of people kissing. Yeah. Like it would be beautiful. It'd be a place that like people can join. Um, almost like a trellis or something you might have at a wedding. But actually, a kissing gate is a very specific type of gate that's designed to keep uh, livestock from getting in and out of a place. So oh. um, you, can't, you can't see my hands, but uh, basically, it's like a letter C. And then there's a piece of the gate that can that can hinge back and forth between one side and the other. So you can enter part of the C, move the metal piece that's on the hinge, and then walk through the remainder of the C to get out into that area. So basically, mm-hmm. it's a protective gate to ensure that nobody no animals can get in no large animals generally it's like use it for cows and sheep and things like that so it's a it's a definitely a, a sort of british i'm guessing a british name for this i don't know if there's a different name but when i googled it here in the u.s it came up exactly what it was i was like oh that makes a lot more sense than what i was thinking functionally but it's not as pretty as i was imagining <laughs> <laughs> okay okay well i know you have a lot to say so why don't you get us started with this chapter yeah so the very first thing i want to point out is this chapter opens with as you said, Ron abandoning them, leaving them. Uh, he has disapparated away, which mm-hmm. we'll cover next episode. But um, what this chapter does that deviates strongly from my favorite film, Deathly Hollows Part One, is it shows the devastation of Ron's departure on both Harry and Hermione. So mm-hmm. when they disapparate the first time, Harry has to cast all the protective enchantments because Hermione's literally unable to do it. She's so devastated at the fact that Ron is gone. They don't speak to each other for many times. They won't say his name. There is no dancing to music, connecting as friends. That scene that happens in the film that was pretty, I won't say controversial in like a social way, just a a controversial choice in the filmmaking Mm -hmm. because it took a a scene that is heartbreaking and it made it kind of lighthearted. And I know filmmakers do that because the audience needs breaks from heartbreak, (laughs) but I personally find this to be more powerful because it shows how important Ron was to all of them. Mm -hmm. It also lays that foundation of Harry worrying about Hermione leaving him, not knowing what's going on, not knowing what to do. And his resentment is growing toward Dumbledore, which we talked about last episode, how it peaks. And when you approach anger backwards, it's like a cliff of this anger that he has toward Dumbledore. We're watching. Now we're like moving our way down the slope to where he's not as angry at Dumbledore, but we're seeing those pieces being laid where the Ron has left because Dumbledore didn't tell them what to do. Right. And Harry feels like it's his own failure when he also acknowledges Dumbledore didn't give him enough information. All this to say, I think it's a very 
powerful set of scenes that they're mm-hmm. moving through where they're not, they're no longer a healthy relationship either. Ron leaving doesn't just break Ron and Harry's relationship or Hermione and Ron's relationship. It breaks the whole trio and it is not happy. There's no dancing. There's no smiling mm-hmm. until at some point in this chapter, Hermione says something and Harry kind of smiles for the first time. And he literally says it felt like the first time he had smiled in weeks. That's yeah. that shouldn't have been erased from the film. It should have felt that bad to us too. Because it is that bad for this trio. Yeah. yeah, this chapter is very solemn. It's very sad. The whole chapter is just Harry like beating himself up, you know, feeling stupid, feeling like he had failed them. And the whole the whole chapter was just, I, I felt really bad for Harry because he's, all he's ever done is be super um, honest with his friends. And they, of course, are following him thinking there's something else going on and it comes to blow. And so he then, of course, is mad at Dumbledore because he has no one else to be mad at you know, he can't be mad at himself. So he's like, no, this is all I know. And he's just, mm-hmm. yeah, super devastated with, with Ron leaving them. I actually, there's a little bit of anger in that. And I found it's page 313. And it says he was waiting for the moment when Ron's labeled dot would reappear in the corridors of Hogwarts, talking about the Mortars map, proving that he had returned to the comfortable castle protected by his status of pure blood. I was like, dang, Harry, <laughs> that's harsh. Mm-hmm. He is mad at Ron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I noted that one too. It 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 casts this difference in classes yeah. that has not really existed among these three, which is pure blood, half blood, and mud blood. Mm-hmm. It finally casts it into perspective because, in yeah. some ways, it is possible that Ron could have done that. He could have gotten away with it. I'm not saying actually it would have played out that way, but theoretically, a pure blood could have just gone back into the fold, yeah. lived under the rule of Voldemort and the Death Eaters, and that could have been that. I also noted in that section that Harry's still creeping on Ginny because you pointed that out last episode. (laughs) He just pulls out the Marauder's map and watches Ginny. And it's like, I I know it comes from a place of of goodness, but it's also like, dude, that's a little bit creepy. You're doing it all the time. Like get it. (laughs) Get a wireless radio or something, you know? Oh, he misses her. And did you notice he says ex-girlfriend, which you don't see much of her, for one, Jenny in the films. You don't get to see her character, which is a very hot topic on the Reddit um, Reddit threads. And so I'm excited to see more of Jenny. But <laughs> also the ex-girlfriend part, they specifically broke up because they wanted it to be like to make sure she was 100% protected. So much so that he considered her his ex-girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Like Cho, an ex, two exes. Um, yeah. What I found interesting is in this chapter, for sure, it's the case where Harry says, He just wishes he could go back, but he's undesirable, number one. Mm -hmm. He experienced split seconds of madness when he imagined simply going back to school and joining in the destabilization of Snape's regime. Being fed, having a soft bed, and other people in charge seemed the most wonderful prospect in the world. Mm -hmm. And I find that really interesting because we did talk about that when Harry, Ron, and Hermione returned to Hogwarts, how most of the students don't realize how big the situation is and that they are not just fighting for Hogwarts, they're fighting for the world. And interestingly, this is one of my other references. One of the things I noticed is that Luna is actually the one in that chapter, which is the Lost Diadem, chapter 29, who says, oh, you came back to help us drive out the Death Eaters and drive Snape away. Interesting that they that, that mm-hmm. she chose Luna to say that line because Luna has more perspective this, than this on most people. Luna has been abducted, held prisoner, and now returned. And yet she doesn't quite connect that there's more going on than just getting Snape out as headmaster. I, w- I would have thought that a different character could have said that line and had it be a little bit more believable now that we think about these students have different perspectives on the war. Luna has more than most. Yeah. But Luna also views things very differently than everyone else. So You know, maybe to her, and you know what, maybe to everyone else, 
they couldn't even comprehend why Harry and Hermione and Ron would even be there. So the only thought is they're just trying to take over the castle as like a safeguard or something. Like maybe they were just like, this is one battle. This isn't about like, we don't think Hogwarts is the war. Mm -hmm. We just think this is one battle and that's what they've come to do. Cause mm -hmm. why else would they come back to Hogwarts? Yeah, that's true. That is very true. It is, I guess I could see for even, even um, McGonagall doesn't quite understand why they would come back Yeah. until they say that they're there on a mission from Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. In which case, you should have just come back on the Hogwarts Express nine months ago. <laughs> right. So did you notice, so uh, Phineas Nagilius, so they have his portrait. Mm -hmm. And so he actually, um, he goes back and forth between Hogwarts to Snape and to um, them mm -hmm. to tell them what's going on in the castle. And they have to be very careful not to talk badly, badly about Snape or he gets really mad and leaves because he's also, you know, a Slytherin, the head of Slytherin. And so I found, I was like, so how, I was like, why were they so naive to think that he wouldn't be telling Snape things, which they tried to, they're like, oh, we, we anytime he would ask questions about where they were, they would put them him back in the bag. Mm -hmm. But he, they actually, I went back to look and they do, they, whenever they um, apparate out of the one random forest they were in, Harry says, hey, where are we? And she says, we're in the Forest of Dean. Mm -hmm. She specifically says aloud where they are. And that's probably how, and that is how Snape found them. Mm -hmm. Yep, it is. It's 100% that is true because that's the Silver Doe chapter. And that's how Snape knows to leave the, the sword for them and, and use his Patronus to guide Harry to the sword. And it's one of the few times that they actually talk about where they are. Really interestingly in this whole book is the way information is only mentioned at certain times, right? So right now we're in these chapters where Harry and Hermione won't say Ron's name aloud. And, and it, you can track that. You can yeah. actually watch and they don't say it until the first time they it gets said. And that's when Ron claims is the first time he hears Hermione say his name and then he is able to use the deluminator to return. Yeah. And it's true. Ron's name is not said between the day he leaves and that first time that Hermione says it. He's mentioned, but not in dialogue between the two characters. Mm -hmm. um, actually... I love Phineas Nigelis. I'm really excited to follow along with him more because he dates all the way back to Order of the Phoenix. And I just think he's a really interesting mm -hmm. fourth or fifth level character. But I actually wanted to take a little intermission here because okay. we have to do today's Gilderoy Lockhart style quiz. Mm. So so I actually like Phineas Nigelis as a character so much that I had a pet fish that we named Phineas Nigelis and we called him Finny. Uh, he was a beta fish. But anyway, that all leads really well into... <laughs> Our Gilderoy Lockhart style question of the week for this week, not the one we did at the beginning of the episode, but this week, mm -hmm. which is, what is your favorite magical creature? Yeah, you know, my answer is pretty simple. I love dragons. I think they're so freaking cool. It doesn't help, you know, Game of Thrones when they're all babies and cute. Mm -hmm. I mean, they like, can ride on their back. They're powerful. I feel like they'd be super connected to you. I, I just think they're cool. They're cool. And we get to have a lot of dragons in this series because we have Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback, yeah. we have the Hungarian Horntail, mm -hmm. we have the Escape from Gringotts, which we've already covered. Uh, as for me, mm -hmm. I think my answer would have to be a phoenix, mm -hmm. but it's a really tough choice. Okay. I'll go with the phoenix only because the phoenix is not only a magical creature that has a very fascinating lifespan and is still we're still learning kind of phoenix lore through Fantastic Beasts, mm -hmm. but... They have magical properties too. So they they can carry extra strength. Mm -hmm. They can tear, they can heal you with their tears. They're very loyal. They can sing. All of that is, it just seems like a really cool creature. Let's recap. So yours is dragon. Bree, the answer for Bree is dragon. And the answer for me is Phoenix. And the reason you want to track that is as part of our Gilderoy Lockhart style quiz. Mm -hmm. At the end of the season, we will have a quiz available for anyone who's listened. And the person who gets the most right answers about us, hence 
the Gilderoy Lockhart pit will win a prize pack of Harry Potter goodies that I have been saving up. Uh, every time I get served a cool ad on Instagram, I save that item <laughs> and we're going to do a little giveaway to celebrate reaching the end of our first season. Yep. Okay. So that's wrapping up Phineas Nigelis and my fish and magical creatures and all that. What other notes do you have in this chapter? Uh, just a small little thing that I found so Hermione is uh, page 315. Oh, they happen to get to go grocery shopping and the line says scrupulously dropping the money into an open till as she left. Mm -hmm. Uh, She, she has to go under the cloak of course. And she ends up leaving money because she's, you know, they're literally in this war and they could just go steal some groceries, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) she can't do it. She has to leave money. Yeah. I like that too. I like that. What that says about her character. And I also get really hungry thinking about spaghetti bolognese and tin pears after reading. I was like, I feel like I should make a little recipe of that on my blog of like this one random meal from Deathly (laughs) Hallows. Um, Speaking of Hermione. Oh, you should. (laughs) Speaking of Hermione, the very next page answered a question that I had. So um, after this great dinner, they've taken off the Horcrux. They're hanging out in the tent. And Hermione is reading the Tales of Beetle the Bard. Mm -hmm. And she has Spellman's syllabary open on the arm of the chair. And I remember discussing it. I think it was last episode, maybe one before that, whether or not the Tales of Beetle the Bard is in Ancient Ruins. Mm -hmm. And it is. Yes. I went back further in the book to chapter seven, and the book is entirely in ancient runes when it's handed to her by Rufus Scrimgeour as he's reading the Will of Albus Dumbledore. And then again, there's a point where she asks Harry to look at it, and the title of each story is an ancient rune. So we have that question resolved, which I it was just a little thing nagging at me that I wanted to know the answer to, and maybe you listener did too. Now we know for sure Hermione is almost prolific in ancient runes, which is a pretty damn impressive skill. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, another thing from that book is on page 317, it says, all the other stories have little pictures over the titles, just like our books. Every single chapter, we have a little picture. Mm, I like that. That's very meta. Good observation. Yeah. It's interesting then that the, t- the Tale of the Three Brothers didn't have that. Yeah. It should have had one, but it didn't. Anyway, that's a that's an aside. <laughs> um, other things that jumped out at me, there's the section from A History of Magic, mm-hmm. which is actually the point where... I believe this is where Harry smiles for the first time as he and Hermione are interacting on an academic subject. Mm -hmm. And she's reading about the foundation of Godric's Hollow and the history of town. Mm -hmm. I did look up, I tried to look up, they're (laughs) not real, but the villages of Tinworth in Cornwall, Upper Flagley in Yorkshire and Ottery St. Cashpole are not real. Neither is Godric's Hollow. But the thing that jumped out at me from this section was that not only is it Godric's Hollow named after Godric Gryffindor and where the Potters lived and where the Dumbledores lived and all of that, it is where the first golden snitch was forged. Yes, I so saw that. So this is a very important historic town. And we don't really get any sense of that. Mm-hmm. Like they don't, she doesn't dive any more into that in the story. But it's very cool then that not only is all of those things true about Godric Gryffindor, but James Potter and Harry Potter are great seekers. Yep. Who, oh. like, I wonder if more seekers are born in Godric's Hollow than other parts of town. Like, I don't know if there's some magical thing in like that community that gets passed down. I don't know. Just a, a little high, a little hypothesis I've had. I love that. You know, I also looked that up too, because I find it very cool that where Harry is from, I I don't think I didn't fully understand how powerful his last name was, the Potter lineage. It is very powerful. And it's very interesting that James would then marry Mm -hmm. a, you know, I guess a mudblood. Um, But now here I am, like not even wanting to say it, like it's a real, a real bad word. (laughs) I know, same here. I tripped, I tripped over it earlier too. (laughs) They were super powerful. Not only did the Dumbledores come from there, there are so many powerful people. It is a powerful little town. And it it is interesting to me, the life Harry could have lived, which you actually have page 321. You have him thinking about the life he could have lived. And 
thinking about what he would have been like because he would have been born to these very, very powerful wizards in a very, very powerful town, little town full of tons of powerful people. Yeah, I just wonder how that makes sense why he is able to do some of the things he is. Like, yes, of course, it's because he's forced to, right? You have to learn quickly when you're supposed to be up against the Dark Lord. But also, he just came from a powerful family and those things were probably innate inside of him. It wasn't just about his life circumstances. Yeah. And and I think it's really interesting how, again, this is sort of the building resentment toward Dumbledore with regard to Godric's Hollow and the Potters and the Dumbledores being from there is that Dumbledore never mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree that I, if I found out that someone that I thought I knew well, who was my mentor, like growing up, Okay, go to college, meet a mentor when I get my academic advisor. And they just never mentioned to me that they also grew up in Alaska like I did. I would be like, I mention it to people because it's interesting and something to talk about. And if we have it in common, it gives us something to bond over. If you don't mention that, I get why Harry would feel resentment. Like, why didn't you, Mm -hmm. why couldn't we have come and done this together? Why couldn't we have experienced and grieved together to have a stronger bond? Well, I mean, Dumbledore does admittedly say he tries to hold Harry at arm's length Mm -hmm. because he's worried that Voldemort will use Harry's mind to access Dumbledore, that he will possess him. I I get that. But in the last book, you know, in Half-Blood Prince, they're very close. They're teaching Harry occlumency. They're protecting his mind. He's working with Dumbledore to try and solve the problem of the Horcruxes. So it seems like that could have been a point where Dumbledore was like, oh, by the way... You know, I don't like talking about it and you don't like talking about it, but let's go see our families in their final resting places because it's something that is important to do. I don't know. I I, I definitely agreed with Harry in his emotional reaction to that information. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it was a kindness of Dumbledore's because Dumbledore knew that he was going to. I mean, I, I can't remember exactly when the curse happened, but maybe at that point he already knew he was going to die or he had assumed and he didn't want to. I don't know make Harry become close to someone else who was likely going to die anyways. I mean, Dumbledore was old, Mm -hmm. you know, he was like 120, which was Mm -hmm. still older than most wizards. That's true. I don't know. Maybe tried to make it easier for Harry. Maybe. I mean, probably giving Dumbledore too much credit, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else in this chapter? Um, Yeah. So I have a couple things. Um, First off, the Potters were 21. Because whenever they go to their grave, I looked at the age. They were 21. Why is everyone getting married and having kids so young in the wizarding world? Good Lord, people. Live live a life. Go travel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a lot the average marrying age, there is, they've documented there's like a, a U-shape, right? There's like you get married really young or you get married, you know, toward the end of your 20s, early 30s. Yeah. That's, that's actually a true statement. But when you meet the person you want to marry and you graduate together at 17 by 21, I guess it would make sense, you know? Yeah. To me, it would make sense. You've been dating since you're 15 or 16. Even if you don't get married for a couple more years after school, by the time you're 18, 19, you're married and then you have a baby a year or two later, that all kind of kind of tracks to me. Yeah. It's young. Certainly it is young, but hmm. lots of people take that path. And there's like a war going on. Of course, I guess Tonks and Lupin have a baby too. Maybe. I don't know. And people, yeah, they talk about that actually, where people in crisis situations like this will get married to, they don't want to wait, right? They talk about that with Remus and Tonks. Like um, even Molly and Arthur talk about that at at one point, Mm. how they were married really young because it's when we're jumping way around in time, but it's when Fleur and Bill are about to get married and nobody can understand why Fleur has chosen Bill. And there's sort of a comment made about like, well, at times like this, like people, people kind of follow their hearts instead of their heads because they don't know what the future will look like and they want to be together while they can. Okay. You know what? That makes a lot of sense. 
Okay. Yeah, I like that answer. It satisfies me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So something else I noticed is a moment. You get a few sweet moments between Harry and Hermione. And I absolutely love their relationship because they're always just friends. They treat each other like brother and sister. And even though they had been kind of keeping each other at arm's distance because of Ron leaving Mm -hmm. and they just were both so upset by him leaving them. It is in the graveyard. And I'm just going to read it real quick. Hermione had taken his hand again and was gripping it tightly. He could not look at her, but returned the pressure, now taking deep, sharp gulps of the night air, trying to steady himself, trying to regain control. He should have brought something to give them, and he had not thought of it, and every plant in the graveyard was leafless and frozen. But Hermione raised her wand, moved it in a circle through the air, and a wreath of Christmas roses blossomed before them. Harry caught it and laid it at his parents' grave. I just, mm-hmm. that I don't know, that moment just like really touched me. I found it very sweet mm-hmm. and kind of a moment that you get to see how deep their friendship is and how much they were connected, um, even despite Ron's, Ron's absence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very moving scene because Harry, we just talked about it last episode, Harry doesn't necessarily get close to his emotions. He prefers to keep them to himself and he also prefers not to deal with them in others. Um, and so for him to be incapable of expressing himself from how moved he is, how deeply, deeply moved he is, is a real testament to that he's still connected with Hermione mm-hmm. that and that she's able to be there for him. Yeah, she kind of she read his mind, you know, the way I like how Luna does that mm-hmm. Hermione is also very intuitive with Harry as well. You know, he didn't have to say anything. She's like, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a great that's a great scene. Beautifully mm-hmm. written. Yeah, I highly recommend if you guys have, Do you have anything else. Um, I was just going to say, if people haven't read this chapter, I would, because it's very sad and very deep. And you get taken into Harry's mind of like wondering what his life would be like. He talks about what he had brothers and sisters, you know, what, what his, what his whole upbringing would have been. There's a whole section on it. It's something I don't think you get to see from Harry very much. Like, you know, he's saddened over his parents' death. That obviously is throughout the series, but going back to Godric's Hollow really affects him and really puts him in his head. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I recommend reading Yeah. It. I mean, it goes it you? goes to show that the loss of one's parents is never easy at any age, even if you barely remember it. Yeah. It's never easy to, you can ask people who, who lose their parents when they're at the end of their lives and it's still hard. It's never easy. And I think that this chapter does a really nice job of handling that grief that, that you can never really heal from that grief entirely uh, in a way that allows any member of the, of the audience, any reader to appreciate it, even if they haven't experienced it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I agree. Th- also, changing tax entirely, this is the first chapter where we start to learn about the Deathly Hollows. Right. Because it's where Hermione recognizes the symbol in the book. They see it on the grave. All of a sudden, we start getting these new little gems of this whole second act, which is discovering what the Deathly Hollows are. Yeah, it's true. It's a good chapter. It is really good. This is a, this is a very, very rich chapter. Lots of information that's relevant for explaining Harry up to this point and pointing him on his final trajectory. Well, cool. Well, I am excited to read the next chapter. See Ron storming off. Right. So let's see. What do we have coming up next? So next week, we are going to be covering two chapters again. Um, again, as a reminder, we're trying to lump them thematically or prox- in proximity within the book. And we will be back to also answer another question for our Gilroy Lockhart style quiz. Um, if you have enjoyed these chapters and this episode, we would really appreciate a review um, and a five-star rating on whatever podcast player you're listening to podcasts like ours, especially in the early days, uh, we really need that kind of feedback. We need to go into the little algorithms and make Apple and other podcast players happy so that they show us to new people. We would also really appreciate if in addition to leaving us a review and a rating, you share it with someone, you know, who loves Harry Potter. 
Tag us on social media. We're at BellJarPod. You can also reach out to us if you have any feedback. So if we have said something wrong, if we're incorrect about something, if you have a different way of interpreting something, we want to hear that. You can reach out on social media or you can email us. Uh, the email to reach us is podcast at followthebutterflies.com, which is the Harry Potter website that I run where you can learn more about Harry Potter and uh, also find more information about this podcast. Anything I missed, Brie? No, I think you covered it all. Uh, but if you share on social media, I, I love it. Um, I know a lot of people are like, how can I help you? Literally share one of our reels. Share just the podcast page. It makes a huge difference and it makes us smile. So, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Or just copy the link from your podcast player and, and literally text it to someone. Yeah. We obviously can't track that. We can't give you a big shout out or whatever, but we really appreciate <laughs> that. And we know, we know there are Harry Potter fans out there and this podcast is now almost at 10 episodes. We have been working very hard for a few months, but we need to, we need to reach new people. We need to help share the story of Harry Potter in, in a new way with new people. So we really appreciate anything you can do to help spread the message. Absolutely. Well, great. All right, so we will be back next week with another new episode, two new chapters, and we hope you have a very great week. Yeah, see you next time. The Glittering Bell Jar is a Harry Potter podcast produced by the Calibro Group in partnership with Wild Goose Creatives. It is an unofficial fan project that is not authorized, approved, licensed, or endorsed by J.K. Rowling, her publishers, or Warner Brothers Entertainment Incorporated. Our theme music is Carnival of the Animals R125, Aquarium by Moments, licensed via Soundstripe. You can discover even more magic on followthebutterflies.com.